0: Well, we know where we are. interiors that if any londoners are listening to this they sure have they have sure to have been inside and uh that's uh that's the talking heads road to nowhere fading out and that was uh aphrodite song and uh, i'm gonna ask her now aphrodite hi hi why why talking heads why this song
1: why this song i guess it was my first introduction to living in london and being exposed to the world of design so i joined. Uh, Central St. Martins College of Art and Design back in 1993 as an 18 year old student who had just arrived from Greece, mm-hmm. arrived in London um, managed to get a coveted place at Central St. Martins which was a big deal back then, you thought yeah, you were sure, very privileged yeah. to be part of that university, that college, you know, the historical that historical to college study yeah, to study okay. design I joined the BA product design group and um, the first thing the tutors did to us, they got us all in a big uh, theater, and they said, we'll now introduce you to the course curriculum. And the first thing they did is played that song. All right, okay. <laughs> and they said, welcome to college. <laughs> and the I road just, to nowhere. Yes, yes, the road to nowhere. <laughs> and, and for me, it really left an everlasting memory, because it just made me realize how different... First of all, um, education was in the UK in comparison to Greece, Mm -hmm. you know, very liberal, very open-minded, allowing people to think. Secondly, I immediately felt, wow, if this is part of what I'll be studying, then I'm really lucky to be doing that because I would listen to this type of music on my own as a teenager and almost not be allowed to listen to Uh, it. In terms of like, you can't listen to this, you have to do your homework and do all the boring stuff. Well, now suddenly, what was the exciting bit? Was Was was, the schoolwork. Was the schoolwork, (laughs) (laughs) yes, exactly. And 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 thirdly, it kind of um, was the beginning of my journey as as a person living in London and okay. experiencing the world of creatives in London, which still fascinates me. I've yeah, been sure. living in this great city of ours since 1993, and whatever never stopped fascinating me about London is the that you meet these most wonderful, creative, liberal, open-minded people yes. that you wouldn't really meet anywhere else. Yes. And I think I learned more from. Those people than from any university, really.
0: Okay, okay. And so you came here to be a designer. Yes. What, uh, what inspired you to even want to do that from the, very, from the beginning?
1: It's a good question. I I think you know you meet people where they say, oh, since I was a kid, I knew I wanted to be whatever they are now. Mm-hmm. I don't think I knew. I just was trying to find my road. You okay. know, maybe where, the road where, to where nowhere. In did you grow up? I grew up in the north in a place called Thessaloniki. Okay, yeah, sure. It's sure, the second, second largest, big, yeah. yeah, second largest city. Okay nice place, but not really uh, exp- exposing young people to the creative worlds, you know, not much happening yeah. in terms of art or design or architecture, a bit like stuck in the past in that sense. And I always knew I wanted to take a career which allowed me to travel and experiment and play with things. I knew I was good at writing, but I knew I didn't want to write for the rest of my life. I enjoyed reading and writing, but I knew I wasn't like, an academic type of person, I enjoyed doing things, you know, making things with my hands. So I kind of didn't know what I wanted to do, but I kind of knew the lifestyle I wanted to have out of the job okay. I would pick up. And I almost um, stumbled upon design when I was 16 So somebody I knew. And I immediately thought, wow, this is what I always dreamt of doing. I just okay. didn't know there was a title for it All because right, we yeah. never had design in our curriculum as mm-hmm. students. When we came to art, we did very kind of, uh, very typical, conservative, old school, kind of linear drawings, so that didn't appeal to me. Well, right. the world of design, which was a bit more, you know, problem solving, yeah. dealing with people, understanding people's psychology really connected a lot of the things that I enjoyed, you know, making stuff, dealing with materials. Kind of telling stories, all of that kind of came together. I just sure. didn't know it was called design. Yeah. So I came to um, Saint Martin's um, to study product design, which I thoroughly enjoyed. I spent three years doing that, and I graduated, and I got a job at. What used to be the largest product design studio in Europe called Simo Powell. Okay. And I was, uh, their first female designer. They were a company of 45 people and they had never ever employed wow. a female. And this was in the that was back in 97, actually. Geez, okay. I know things have changed Not that dramatically. Long ago, was it? Yeah. <laughs> and it wasn't their fault, you know. They would say, there would hardly be any graduates graduating from product design okay. who are female. We would be, when I graduated, we were eight females out of 68 students, so we were the minority. And when I interviewed with them, they said, one of the reasons we want to employ you is because you're female. I didn't know whether that was a positive or a negative. (laughs) In many ways, you think, yes, great, I'm lucky to get a job. But at the same time, you think, are they picking me just because I'm female and for another reason? But to be honest, they wanted to have a more equal I guess a uh, workplace and they couldn't achieve that because there were no graduates coming out and they were also running at a time a project which was to design a bra, the a
0: bra, piece, a bra okay. as
1: in a piece of underwear and both the uh, directors were male, every okay. senior designer was male <laughs> yeah. and I thought oh maybe that's one of the reasons yeah, I've been right, taken yeah. on okay. because they immediately placed me on that project for obvious reasons. Which was a great project to run, but really interestingly, it made me realize, and I was only 21 or 22 back then, that there's this world of products coming out in the marketplace that are all designed by men, although some are very gender biased as products by definition, such as you know underwear. And I thought, wow, it's really interesting how this whole world of uh, product design, industrial design was so male dominated, I had never realized before until Mm -hmm. I got a job. Anyhow, so that was my beginning as a as, as a as a designer. That's were my first steps and okay. um almost by accident I'm doing what I'm doing now because it was a big kind of move on and did you
0: have to so are you working with a group of men to design this bra and you, yeah I like did actually are having to explain like how yeah, things and I had to feel be, and work that they yes. just didn't realize
1: the interesting thing is we had to do a lot of real prototypes because back in <laughs> in the day there was no digital design as such everything was done by hand you know model making was done by hand there was very little digital design work taking place so I remember we had to um physically make prototypes on female breasts, like live breasts. And obviously the directors would be in the same room, Mm. but they would instruct me what to do without having to touch those um, people's bodies, obviously, because it would have been quite incorrect to do that. So there was a lot of literally touchy-feely when the project was taking place, and it was all male and myself trying to explain Trying to analyze what is fundamentally wrong with the design of a bra. I mean, uh, the two bosses, which were, which are brilliant people, would always take a very problem-solving approach to everything. To, uh-huh. So to them, it was just another product that yeah. needs, you know, and another problem that needed to be solved. Sure. Okay. Solved, and they would explain it to me as, you know, we need to look at breasts as in. Uh, a load, a weight load. Okay. And a bra is a piece of structure that needs to hold right. this weight load, which it is effectively. Yeah, sure. but it was a very, how can I say, technical way of looking at the, what is effectively an emotional piece of underwear for a lot of women. Yeah, right, yeah. So, yeah, we, uh, I think I spent about two and a half years on this project from beginning twenty. It was an eight million pound investment from a client to invent wow. this new kind of technology and new material that would create effectively a structure around large-breasted women and help them be supported properly. And it went out to market back in '99, and it became a really big success for the business, thankfully, because they had invested so much, they would literally have gone bust if it hadn't sold well. Like <laughs> <laughs> sold- the of technology, <laughs> <laughs> I guess. Like, literally. Yeah. And it sold really well. So that was my kind of baptism of fire in the world of product design. <laughs>
0: okay. Wow. Well, you said a problem to solve it. You think that is like sort of a core definition of design?
1: I still think it is. In my world, it is for sure. As in when, what I mean about, uh, about my world, what I mean is in a studio, it's very much about problem solving. In okay. other studios, it might not be a priority. And I moved on and I'm not a product designer as such anymore. We deal, I'm a hospitality designer. So yes. we spend a lot more time designing restaurants and bars and hotels and dealing with um interior spaces as you said earlier and branding and concepting around these places yet at the same time to me there's still a fundamental problem solving taking place in every part of in every stage of the process of design and although interior design is not seen as so much problem solving as necessarily product design is i still think you have to ask yourself, how do people feel? How do they navigate around the space? How do they use the space? How do you solve the problem that the business might have? So there's millions of problems that you might have to solve on a very kind of functional level, on a financial level, on an emotional level, on a psychological level, Mm -hmm. on a communication level. Yet at the same time, all of them to me are still problems. As in they need to be addressed in in a way that Creatively resolves these issues, or or allows them to perform at the best of their ability, whatever their, their their task is.
0: So, how did you get into hospitality design?
1: <laughs> That's uh, a very, uh, I think, surprising answer that I'll give you because uh, it was completely by luck. I have told this story several times to people, and everybody gets quite surprised when they find out because all I did is um, back in around two thousand and. Four, I had set up my own business by then, my own studio. And I was uh, an emerging, let's say, uh, young uh, product designer, designing for... S- I-, I mainly worked with a lot of Italian companies, designing furniture for them and lighting. And um, I wrote a letter to uh, the founder of Preta Manza, Julian Metcalf. Yes. I used to have this habit where every Friday I would take about a t- an hour out of my schedule and write a handwritten letter to somebody I'd really admired in whatever yeah. line of business they were in. And okay. it was just a habit that I had, you yeah. know. And I remember um, reading an interview by Julian Metcalf and I thought some of the things he said within that interview were really striking and really impressive, you know, down to how much they um, had spent at the time, um, time and effort in redesigning pret and kind of reconfiguring the whole concept. When did Pret start? Oof, back in the 80s I don't remember yeah okay, it's okay. quite an old okay. concept amazingly successful the theater, okay. yeah
0: because they're everywhere now so. yes
1: and I think back in the mid 90s they had the whole like redesign rebranding reconfiguration so I read this interview and I thought wow what a brilliant mind what a creative mm-hmm. entrepreneur because you meet a lot of entrepreneurs who are more creative than designers to be honest and they've got a real vision like a real vision of where they want their business to go and that came across in the interview so I wrote this handwritten letter and I said dear Julian I read this interview blah blah I thought it's amazing that you did this and that they had sourced this wallpaper to go in every Pret uh, store that was designed by uh, well not so well known quite obscure Australian wallpaper designer from Ah. the 1960s called Emily Brockhurst and I thought how interesting that they even discovered this wallpaper designer she wasn't extremely well known and kind of imported her designs from Australia quite difficult to access and then had placed them everywhere in every pret across town Mm -hmm. and I thought it's quite amazing that they've done that so I wrote that in my letter and the next day I received this call from um, his PA and he said she said "Uh, Julian would like to meet you would you like to come in and I said yeah of course I would love to so I went and met with him, and uh, in the space of very little time, he said to me, I'm setting up a new business, would you like to come over and help me? And that business became what is now known as ITSU, okay, sure. so I, I said, I would love to, I, I couldn't work out whether he was completely crazy or a genius, because okay. I said to him, to be honest, I've never done anything like that before, this is way outside what I've been taught mm-hmm, to do mm-hmm. in life, you know, I know how to design products, I understand a lot of things around production or how to take products into produ- production, but I've never done interiors, I've never done branding, I've never dealt with food, retail. And he said, don't worry, you know, I'll give you eight weeks, we've got a site, and you can prove yourself. It's just and- the the Chelsea...
0: The, the Chelsea existed. Was it Walton Avenue,
1: Walton that was what he had at the time. Okay. He only had that Ichu uh, restaurant. I took my mom there when
0: she first visited. Oh really? Yeah.
1: <laughs> Did you have a good experience? Yeah, it was exciting. Yeah, Excellent. it was fun. And he had the, was, had the, the conveyor, conveyor belt. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So the conveyor belt was the first reiteration of Itsu, so That's before I joined that journey. And when I met with him, he said, "I actually would not really like to uh, roll out these conveyor belt restaurants anymore because I'm not a restaurateur. I deal with food retail." Mm-hmm. So I would like to take what's the model here, but turn it into effectively a quick service restaurant like Pret-a-Manger and create a whole brand around this and roll it out. But there was nothing in place as in, apart from the name Itsu and the idea that we would be selling some sort of Asian food, nothing else was in place exactly. in terms of brand design, positioning. And he had found a site on um, the uh, ground floor of Vogue House, Hanover Square, which is off Regent Street, a very small mm-hmm. site. And he said, you've got effectively eight weeks. And I would say, but we haven't got even a a logotype. And he would say, yeah, go ahead and design it and come back to me. And over the space of eight weeks, we pretty much together masterminded what became the basic skeleton of it. So, you know, the initial color palettes, the butterfly logotype. I coined this phrase, health and happiness, which became the first trap line
0: Fantastic.
1: And uh, thank you. And then uh, I designed this small store's interior. The store was only 35 square meters, so it was absolutely tiny. Designed all the menus, all the packaging, the uniforms. And that was in the space of eight weeks, so it gave me an awful lot of stress and a lot of sleepless nights. Okay. And also I had to go through this massive learning curve because I had never, ever designed anything like that in mm-hmm. my life. So it was all completely new. And then the first site opened, and um, it did really well from literally the first week. So we thought, okay, that's really promising. And then Julian said, would you like to come on board and design the second one? And it was a very organic process. And before I knew it, I'd spent five years working solidly with it. So I became really the creative amazing. director, okay. uh, and I would overlook everything they did and overlook every aspect of design and creative that would come out, down to food photography, working with the chefs too. Find ways of how to best present the food within mm-hmm. the packaging. Design the packaging, every single element, even down to the sound of it. To so, you know what would be the playlist, what would be the website. There was no social media back then, but tone of voice, every single element, so that it would go back to this very coherent, cohesive mm-hmm. concept that we had come up at the
0: very, very wow. beginning. Well, where are you finding your ideas, and how, how are you going about this? So,
1: I, I, I. It's, it's very hard, you know. People ask this question again and again, and I don't know. It's very hard to define where your ideas come from. But I guess what always motivates me, I can answer that, or what drives me, is to understand people. And that's very, very important to me, to really understand why people make certain choices versus others, or how they feel within a space, or how they respond to something without even necessarily realizing that they respond to it. So for example I've I've been doing recently in the last few years a lot of researching and reading around non-visual elements within restaurants and how we respond to them such as sound or smell yeah. or other other multisensory parts of the experience that you're not even aware that sure. really affect the way your flavoring you know your understanding of flavor changes your perception of flavor so really understanding people and how we use a space or understand the space or respond within a space is really fundamental to what I always strive to design. So with Itsu, it was very, very important for me that people would come in and feel that this place was in a way quite Asian, but not in a traditional way, mm-hmm. quite fast and, and, and vibrant as an environment, mm-hmm. but also convey the idea of lightness and cleanliness and, yeah. and freshness, which is very fundamental to the food that's served but i wanted the environment and the brand to really reflect all of that to feel really light and fresh and clean and crisp just like the food but also quite beautiful and quite aspirational as a place to go to and and it always starts with trying to understand what is the story that we want to tell to people okay it always starts with that that hopefully they would respond to Mm -hmm. and then out of that we always try as a studio even now to find what's the shortest and most efficient way of telling that story as in what's the easiest way for people to understand that story okay. because i think a lot of times as a designer as a creative you're trying to say so many things that you get people to become really confused at the end about what mm-hmm. your message is and i think the best designs always come down to it being extremely simple okay.
0: and So easy. someone can get it immediately yes
1: okay. absolutely I, I really truly believe that. or intuitively without explanation okay. if you look at for example, Apple is a great you know, company in terms of product design or, or even communication or branding. You don't need to spend much time to understand what they're trying to communicate. Give it to a
0: child and they can figure it out.
1: Exactly. Quickly. And it's very intuitive. Oh. And again, it boils down to simplicity, editing all the noise out okay. and keeping the core of the concept of, or, the, or the core of the story that you want to tell okay. as pure and as clean as possible so that people respond to it immediately and emotionally to it rather than having to be told what to do and how to do it. I think that's always the best way, but always very difficult, I think, to achieve.
0: Would you even go so far to say you're a storyteller?
1: I think it's a word that's been over-abused in the last... Decade. <laughs>
0: Everybody is. So
1: actually, no, I okay. wouldn't. I, th- I agree. You're right. Mm-hmm. I think everybody's yeah. a storyteller. If I hear... I mean, if, if my accountant might come next week and tell me he's a storyteller, do, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Every single person I meet and says... Everything's American, I say, what do you yeah. do? We're storytellers, yeah. But what do you do exactly? I don't know. We design... I don't know. We yeah. teach people how to drive cars. And you think, mm, okay, I don't, I don't really get what sure, you mean. Yeah. But... I wouldn't say I'm a storyteller. I think any, anybody who creates a system or, or you know, a system, effectively design can be also called a system, a system of doing things, needs to communicate that across. You know, by communicating, yes, of course you're telling a story, but effectively you're a communicator, whether you want to call that poetically a storyteller or something else, sure. it's, it's effectively, to me, design is nothing else but a means of communicating in a visual manner. You're trying to communicate. You should be looking at, I don't know, this environment here, and you should be uh, extracting out of what you're seeing, or feeling, or hearing, or smelling, a certain cessation or a a certain message that is being communicated to you, whether that's intentional or unintentional. Mm -hmm. And I think the designer's role is to craft what that message is, and then find the most effective. Natural, simple, beautiful way of telling it without over cluttering or without confusing, taking away effectively all the noise. That to me is what our job is. Okay. Whether you are applying that on designing a space or designing a building or designing a car, it's 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 effectively the same process, in my opinion. Okay,
0: so you worked with Itzu for five years. Yeah, and then
1: and then I thought, okay, this is a really fascinating world. The world of hospitality, but even more food and beverage within the whole wider hospitality was almost like, how can I say, like a a new dawn, which I never thought I'd be part of. But being, I guess, Greek, being raised in a, a traditional Greek family, food is so fundamental to our culture and so central to everyday, you know, everyday life that I I was always fascinated by it and then design was my big passion and my big, you know, uh, kind of obsession in life, let's say, and suddenly I thought, wow, by designing restaurants, I'm almost combining the two. I'm dealing with a sector that's very important to me and, and also the fact that, you know, that you're dealing with people on their best time out, you know, when they're going out to really escape and have an amazing yeah. time, is so rich and so, it, I feel really privileged. You're dealing with the one hour tours two hours that people would have in their day where they can go out and escape and, sure. and have a great time. So you're dealing with something very precious in their lives. So the, the idea that, you know, that, that sector of food and beverage and the wider hospitality and design combined, I thought, wow, this is really fantastic. And almost by accident, I stumbled upon it. Again, I didn't expect that I'd be doing that. Had you asked me, I don't know, 20 years ago, there's no way I would have guessed I'd be doing that. And um, I thought, that's it, that's what I'm meant to do. So after five years working with Julian uh, full-time, I said, um, I need to go back to my studio, I need to engage back to you know running my own business, because really, ITSU was a full-time, complete uh, you know absorption of all my energy. And um, I s- went back to my studio in around 2008, and I thought I should be doing more of this type of projects, and I had learned so much by then out of doing ITSU, and the second client who approached me were the people who effectively created Dishun. Okay. So that was uh, my second project. And they had seen it and so they really liked it. So they approached me and they said, we're creating what should become a bit of a game-changing Indian restaurant. And we want to... Indeed be- it
0: was. Yes.
1: yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Probably. wildly successful too. Wildly successful, yes. Absolutely. And they, they gave me a brief, which was... um very linear which was uh, to design an Indian a very contemporary Indian restaurant that looks almost like Wagamama that was the brief but does kebabs and beer and I thought okay that's quite interesting what can I extract out of it and I could I could see out of the brief that I could read two things out of it a that they wanted to move away from the cliches and the stereotypes of Indian dining And I guess that's why they wanted to go down this Wagamama really clean, really contemporary route. Um, And also that they had a very specific type of food that they wanted to serve, which again, wasn't the expected curry house, you know. Typical experience you would have on a Friday night. And I thought these are both interesting but not quite tuned in the right way and especially in the current market. So I went back to them and I said, look, Wagamama was created 10-15 10-15 years ago and it's it's a great concept and extremely innovative but not really relevant to the food you're serving you know Indian food to me is quite warm and spicy and hearty very different to Asian clean cooking which was the positioning of Wagamama when it first started and I said I don't understand why this like really contemporary canteen type of environment how does this link with your food and you know how yeah. do they all come together, and how how is that relevant in today's market? Where, are in 1998? It
0: just makes me think the food would taste less good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: yeah. And that's that's really really important when it comes to design of of restaurants. Mm-hmm. You need to always start with the food. You know that's what I always say. You cannot ignore the most important bit, which is the sure. food. The experience needs to almost radiate out yeah. of the plate. You know I always start. I, we always start a project where we try the food and then we think, okay, we need to now think what should this food be served on and what kind of table should it be sitting on and, and then think, almost radiate out of that and then think what are the chairs around this table and what are the floors and what is the lighting and, and then kind of grow the whole design out of this most central part of the experience, which is the dish in front of you.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: So the two to me didn't come together. So we did a lot of researching and kind of going and coming back and a lot of me questioning their brief effectively. And it took almost six months until um, we moved on to a completely new direction. We went went out to um, Mumbai together to do research and the heart of, of every single project that we created as a studio would always be based on really, really lengthy research processes which is very much... I guess uh, a leftover from my days as a product designer, you would never design anything unless you understood who's your competition, who's your market, who's our, you know, take a quite strategic route. And when I first approached interior design, it shocked me that people did no research whatsoever and they just would go and design things that just looked nice but they had no positioning or no you know Mm research-based thinking. So we did a lot of research with show. We went out to Mumbai, and I kept saying, wow, these places, which are kind of Indian, but not Indian, European, but not European, serving this very peculiar, unexpected food, and they look very monochromatic and very classic, to me are completely new. I've never seen anything like that. And to them, because they're Indian themselves, yeah. They were not fascinating at all, and they kept going, ah, oh, yeah, yeah, these are these, you know, cafes that have been around for years. I was like, wow, this is amazing. Look, all the tables are completely worn out. They've been around for 30 years, 40 years old, or even longer. We went to some of them, and I remember this was a beautiful moment. They had these old marble tables in these cafes, and because they would always serve a jug of water for free, and they would place it in the middle of the table, the table would be lit, and it would have a dip from all the years of use it would go a bit lower, and that's where the jug would sit. And they had this patination and that kind of layering and that, you know, all things all mixed together Mm -hmm. and that level of authenticity that I didn't expect to find. And um, suddenly, I think we all had a bit of a eureka moment. We thought, that's it. That's exactly what we should be doing. And once we had this the client on board you know we were very convinced as a studio that's what we should be doing and the client was like yeah i now get it i can now see what you're talking about then it was almost the easiest project on the planet so it's six
0: oh, it took okay. six
1: it took six months of agonizing and going through the brief and not really agreeing and not knowing where to go next but yeah. then we had this moment where we thought that's what it should be and the client thought yeah now i get it i can totally see it. Because I guess if you're from this culture, you don't appreciate things you've seen so many sure. times.
0: But as an outsider, you saw the charm.
1: Exactly, yeah. but they didn't see it as charming. They just thought, they just thought of them as old kind of dilapidated, mm-hmm. you know, not really contemporary kind of places. And I thought that's exactly what we should be doing. It's authentic. It's different. It's completely unseen in the UK market. Yeah. It's, uh, it, it's taken me as a surprise because I expected every restaurant in India to look a bit like what you would get in the UK, which is a lot of color, a lot of decoration, yeah, yeah. like flock wallpaper. It was nothing like that. These places were almost based on European cafes, you know, like Mm -hmm. Viennese type of cafes, very classic, marble clad, black and white. I thought this is great, but then they had all this oddness of Indian life, you know, like garlands of flowers hanging on the walls Mm -hmm. and a Ganesh and a picture of the mother and the father. And you know, these like layers, and I thought they are so surreal and beautiful, we should just do that. Anyhow, and um, it took another year and a half to develop the whole concept. Again, in a similar way to, to Itsu. I kind of became involved in every single aspect from how should the food be presented, tableware, uniforms, menus, uh, obviously the interiors, the brand design, overlooking the people who did the website design and everything else. And um, the project was getting more and more complex every month with more components added to it, where you know suddenly there was a bar as well and there was drinks. It started as a simple canteen and it became more and more complex to the benefit of the project, too, uh, to be fair. And then it opened in 2010 and I thought, wow, this is either going to go really well or really... You know, confuse people where they won't get it sure. and close down very quickly because it was quite new. Even the food offer was very new. And I thought it's either people love it or hate it. It wasn't a marmite project. It was a marmite project rather than a vanilla project. And we opened the first site next to a Jamie's Italian and Jamie's at the time was, I guess, at the peak of their success.
0: Okay.
1: Quite a new brand. Everybody was in love with it and they would constantly have these cues outside. And the shoom opened, and for the first six months, it was doing all right, but, you know, it wasn't the success that it is. Now, you think, oh, wow, you know, how is that going to go? Let's see. And I remember going six months after the opening and seeing a bigger queue outside than Jamie's, and I thought, yes, we've done it.
0: There's queues that, what is it, three or four? There's a six now, actually. Oh, my gosh, yeah. Well, as I was saying before we started recording, I was in... Soho, and yeah. I, the queue is there. And yeah,
1: just, uh, I cannot go myself anymore. I have to queue just yeah. like everybody else. <laughs> so I've given up. I have to say yeah. I'm not patient when it comes to queuing. Oh, oh my goodness,
0: wow. Yeah, well, so that was our wow. first,
1: second project.
0: Wow. Wow, well, you are two for two. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I don't then know. from that, you started working. So I know you've worked with, what, Heston Blumenthal? Yes,
1: currently working with um, Gordon Ramsay, which is a very nice project. Oh, right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So we have a, a, a nice mix. I, I, we're one of, uh, I guess, the few um, design agencies, there I say even worldwide, who are highly specialized in in the world of... we um, are just
0: working in London with the...
1: We have projects abroad as well, okay. but majority of our work is in London. Okay. But what is nice is that um, there's only a handful of design agencies that are so specialized within that uh, world yeah. of food and beverage. And we hardly ever take any project which is not closely related to food and beverage. where food and beverage is at the heart of, 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 of the concept. So we work with hotels, we work with cinema operators, we work with chefs. Okay. But even with, let's say, a cinema operator. Mm-hmm. At the heart of what they do, it would be food and beverage. So we're working, for that's example. How they make their money, Exactly. Right? Uh, so at the heart of every concept, there's a very strong food and beverage component that's always at the heart of everything. So you this- With Curzon? Yeah, Curzon, mm-hmm. Cinemas. The one in, on,
0: uh, Shaftesbury? Uh, or, in Soho. Oh, Soho,
1: no, that was only refurbished very lightly. Uh, we didn't okay, okay. do that, okay. but we've done six or eight Curzons, if I remember correctly. We've done the first uh, flagship one, which was Victoria Street in Victoria.
0: Oh, right. Yes. Okay.
1: Where they tried to introduce a completely new concept, much more digitally led, you know, Mm. kind of targeting a younger audience, a lot more food and beverage led and kind of moving on from where they used to be to a slightly different place. And um, we designed since then uh, quite a few different councils across the country, the latest one we completed is a redesign of Chelsea, because in Chelsea which is a historic location, okay. yeah, sure, yeah. Um, and they're a lovely client to have because they're obviously from the world of cinema, which is, you know, very much a different world to the world that we yeah. normally deal with. But they're run by really passionate people, sure. you know, and that's what um, I appreciate with all our clients that it's run by it's mainly businesses which are run by passionate entrepreneurs yeah. rather than big corporates. And you deal with people who are equally creative as you are, so you have a great, hopefully flow of ideas between the two sides, and one helps the other in creating what is the final effect. I used to have a tutor of mine who would say to me, "Aphrodite, you're only as good as your clients," and I think that stayed with me and I, don't, I didn't understand it when I first started, but now I understand it you know when you work with great people, yeah. the result is always ten times better than working with people who don't you know, who are not as creative or not very open to new innovation or new ideas. It, okay. it takes two to tango.
0: Sure, yes it does. And it sounds like I mean what you were describing when you first started working with shume, you had to be quite confident. It's a to sort of counter their ideas. Mm. And then they've got to really trust you. Mm. I mean that that is a tango. <laughs> that that's <laughs> yeah. Like, and sometimes it yeah.
1: takes yeah it's you're right, uh, Chris. Sometimes it takes less time and sometimes it it takes uh, longer time and sometimes you might not need to challenge someone at all because their brief is, we get sometimes really those type of briefs where we think, yeah, that sounds really logical and we don't need to challenge anything. But you do have clients, especially when there's, you know, uh, startups like younger and they don't Mm -hmm. know this industry really well, that they look at you for a lot of guidance beyond even design And um, you form relationships which are more advisory rather than just a design supplier kind of role, which I really enjoy. So rather than telling people, okay, this is your design, now take it, go and install it and see you later. I'd rather we become more involved in helping them in any other way to help Mm -hmm. them Mm -hmm. survive in what is an extremely congested and competitive market. The the restaurant industry, especially in the UK, is extremely, Compressed and difficult right now, so okay. you really need all the support you would get, especially as a young startup, to really even survive. Forget about expanding and growing. So you need a, a, a team of people who are all equally passionate, ambitious, and supportive with each other to get that thing happening. So if you look at this room again, you know, I look at this room, and people come and say, "Oh, congratulations! This room is fantastic!" And I was saying, "It's, it's, it's not just me. There were." 12 people working on this project you know who put equal energy into making it become the success that it is now and it also doesn't happen overnight it takes months and years to build the business to where it should be so I always tell people if you're going into this world of restaurant food and beverage you need to be patient, you need to really love what you're doing. Yeah. Otherwise you shouldn't even be opening a restaurant. It's one of the hardest industries to be in.
0: Okay, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Well do you think there's still innovation? You think there's still interesting restaurants and restaurant concepts coming out? Oh. From my perspective I think you were kind, plateauing. Of a, kind of a plateau. <laughs> yes. at a high level. Yeah, yeah, but I—it's more just filling in the gaps now. I know, I I, know,
1: I, I agree with you. I think I think there's just been so many new concepts coming yeah. out in the last decade that I, th- I personally feel we're entering all the world of gimmicks now, where one is trying to yes. outdo the other with gimmicky ideas. Um, nobody's looking at the long term. Everybody's looking at the short term. Mm-hmm. And everybody, even us as a studio, dare I say, because we're so saturated with what we've seen for the last 10 years, yeah. end up almost, all the whole industries ending up repeating the same thing again and again in a different shape or form. Yeah. And there's very few people who are willing to take big risks. And I don't know, I've been having this thought, especially in the last six months, that it would take a different model for restaurants to be innovative again, in my opinion, where they almost need to be, and I don't want to make it sound too, um, romantic, but I think you, you will almost need to have a similar setup as you have in uh, the tech world, where there's labs, which are kind of nurturing okay. innovative ideas. What do you
0: see street food doing that? And sort of like little incubator things?
1: there's been a lot of movements in trying to create these incubators but they've never been properly invested in terms of time and money and i almost feel that the ideal scenario is that there's a lot of people who want to move into the hospitality world but not traditionally part of the hospitality world because a it's very sexy and attractive but b it's been performing quite well simply on financial level terms but if we want to see this industry being innovative and doing new things these people need to understand that they need to invest in a proper kind of laboratory level in experimenting okay. and coming up with truly new
0: ideas. To be prepared to fail. And exactly, yeah.
1: before they go out to market with them. And this is not happening. There's a bit of a discrepancy where people are expecting these returns without investing properly right. in new thinking or new or innovation or experimentation. So I would almost love to see somebody investing properly when i say properly as in serious money mm-hmm. in coming up with completely new models of exactly. how restaurants should be not just designs or concepts but completely new models what i mean by models i let's say for example ikea when ikea was set up it was a completely new retail model altogether. Mm-hmm. you know forget whether we like the products the final outcome outcome is irrelevant in my opinion But the actual model, the retail model, was completely rethought, you know. The person who founded it thought, you know, we don't need to be shops inside urban city centers anymore. That was already kind of new. We don't need to have a finished product. We get the consumer to finish it themselves. We don't need to do this. We don't need to do the other. There was all this rethinking of the actual model itself and how it operates, which brought real innovation and a complete... From ground up, rethinking sure, yeah. of what furniture retailing should look like. And I don't think people are doing that in our world. We're taking certain parameters for granted and we're just trying to almost change the skin of them. But we're not going from ground up, rethinking. In 10 years, 20 years time, there's going to be completely new challenges in the food world. How are we going to re- rethink our model from zero, from ground zero all the way up, you know, from all the way from... How we look at the labor market, that's completely a challenging world right now. How do we use new technology? How do we use resources which are one way or the other affecting the planet, whether we like it or not, and and are, you know, uh, becoming, resources are becoming ethically more challenged. So, all of these elements to become. Together in what could be a fantastic opportunity to rethink completely how we go out and experience right. food. Yeah. Completely. It doesn't have to be restaurants anymore. It doesn't have to be four walls, a ceiling and a floor and waiters running around serving new food. Yeah. I think people are not being brave enough. They take this same model, but kind of almost using gimmicks to come up with something new. And I say that, but for that to take place, I think it needs, as I said, some serious, almost not commercial environment to rethink it before it goes to market that would be a dream project to be honest if if we were ever to move away from design (laughs) or further away from the commercial world of design
0: what do you see is there something you think is missing in in the london restaurant scape
1: i think there's a lot of things missing but um you know it depends on what everybody's ambitions are there's not always the same ambitions across people and within The food food world of of the UK, there's completely different sectors and it depends on whether people want to be more in the luxury type of world or in in the more um, uh, kind of fast, casual world. But there's still a lot of gaps in my opinion. But as I said, it's not gaps in the sense, oh, we haven't had Peruvian cuisine you know, or we haven't had food from I don't know Burma or some new location that's right. not the gap right now okay. the gap is how do we reconfigure how we do things completely so even down to let's say the quick service industry you know the Preta model it's a fantastic model it's proven very successful yeah. but would that be the model of 20 years looking into the future
0: well, what do you think about sort of like app-based delivery and takeaway so I ask because near where I live there's this little re- little takeaway restaurant opened recently. Uh seems like there's some money behind it. Yeah. No one hardly anyone's ever in there. Maybe right. on a Friday night, but there's always, you know, like guys with their scooters outside which place coming is that? and going. It, it's a little burger place. Okay. Yeah, do and I'm one. guessing they're doing do you quite live in well. Film? No, I, okay. I, I live in, w- right. in Waltham. Okay, in Square. right. Sorry. Yeah. I'm trying to
1: guess which one it might be. Yeah. So they're mainly. But, doing but I'm delivery. wondering,
0: maybe even though the space is empty most of the time, they might be doing really well because they're they're sending burgers out.
1: Yeah, yeah, at, yeah. At the reason I'm asking is we've worked with a, a kind of premium delivery burger company. That's why I'm asking. Which does exactly that. Their whole model is that they have very small spaces.
0: So with the sort of aviator theme, or am I thinking of another one? No,
1: they don't have an aviator theme, but. Um, the idea is that they're dedicated to premium burgers delivered at home rather than you going into their spaces okay. yeah. and, and there are models like that there's what's called now the ghost restaurants I yeah. don't know if you've heard of this term yeah. where you know this de- roux box this deliver concept where you just have a kitchen operating from I don't know Battersea and yeah. it's in a kind of digital brand that doesn't exist in an analog world anymore and delivers really great food from, you know, a, a central kitchen somewhere which just produces the food. Yeah. And what do I think of it? I I mean, I'm 45. I'm not of the generation that would order michelin start food and have it at home because yeah. to me that's not what I want to be doing. Nevertheless, I'm not the majority of the market. There is, Well, I'm not representative of the whole of the market, that's right, for yeah. sure. And there's a big audience out there who would rather be at home rather than be going out, you know, and I think, I think the challenge for design again is how do you literally deliver an experience yeah. which is equally exciting as going to a restaurant because to me you go to a restaurant not to be fed that you can do that anywhere. Yeah. You're going for other reasons. Which it's is
0: entertainment, pampering.
1: Exactly, yeah. being looked after, you know, you cannot necessarily get that at home right. and and I don't fear I'm, I'm not a technophobe in that sense I'm not the kind of person who thinks, oh my god the delivery will take over everybody will sit at home and just order food on an app and never go out I think the too can live symbiotically sure, course, sure. but I think the question again is what is the role of traditional bricks and mortar restaurants right. in a world which is becoming increasingly digitized and I think as a wider discussion I think food the consumption of food and beverage is one of the few things that have not yet been replaced by the digital world the actual consumption you know
0: it's
1: it's still a very physical experience the same way as making love to somebody is still a very digital uh, analog experience and it hasn't been replaced by uh, an equivalent digital kind of uh, not yet not yet (laughs) I I keep saying not yet because we never know but currently it's still a very Physical, hands-on yeah. type of experience. And I think to me that's a great opportunity. And uh, for the time being, and until it gets replaced, and if it does ever get replaced, I think we should take advantage of that because there's nothing more sensual in my opinion than having food, real food presented mm-hmm. in front of you. Yeah. It touches your every single sense. You know, you smell it, you hear it, you taste it, you see it, you feel it and it enters your body so it's a very very physical process that you don't really have with many other things plus it affects you from inside out like literally it becomes you by consuming food it becomes part of you so I think we have a very specific relationship with food and drink which is not the same as consuming I don't know going and buying a pair of jeans it's a completely different scenario so I think there's a real advantage for restaurants to fulfill these physical needs that we still have as human beings, and in a world which is becoming depleted physically, you know, in an increasingly digital world, I think we're having a, a kind of sensorial de- depletion, whether we like it or not. And what is it I was reading yesterday? I was reading this article in the FT about, um, you know, this whole. Uh, addiction to Instagram and how it's depleting our other senses, you know? Mm. So I I think there is a role for restaurants to fulfill which is beyond the digital world and how can we emphasize that and dial that that even more so it replaces all the things we're kind of getting in smaller quantities in our life now. But this is, uh, again, I would love it if there was a, a formal Kind of uh, system or process for the whole world of because it is a big industry beyond design. There's obviously all the, all the people who are dealing with restaurants in a. It's like a massive industry, and I would love it if, if the industry would think internationally in a much more, as I said, future-proofing way rather than immediate.
0: Right, yeah. You know, short
1: term kind of solution and filling gaps in the yeah. market kind of focus which is what currently is happening where we would really question all of these things in the future sure. down the line
0: well that's a, that's a lovely note to end things on <laughs> and if people want to find out more about you and your work how, how can they find out where should they, they can go? just go
1: on our website aphrodite.com
0: okay. okay. aphrodite.com and that's uh, A-F-R-O-D-I-T-I
1: correct yes
0: okay. oh. Oh, so lovely to meet you. What a great way to, meet, to meet, someone. meet you too. Thank Thanks you for, for coming over. Thank you.
1: Thank you too.